Amen. Thank you so much, worship band, leading us so well this morning. It's great to see you all. I'm glad that you're here. I'm Pastor John. I've been away for uh, the month of July. My wife and I, we took time away for some vacation and and when I come back, I was, you know, I was talking to some people this week, and they were asking, hey, how was your vacation? How was your time away? I was like, great, it's great. But it, it is so good to be back. It's one of those things, you, you just value the things that you have when you're gone. Oh, my goodness, it's so good to see you. And I'm so thankful for our worship, uh, our, our preaching team, uh, Leanna and Jim and Caleb. They did such a well, great job in bringing God's word to us and inspiring us and we're so, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for you and your love for this church and for our ministries that God has called us to and the exciting opportunities and challenges that we face together in this world that God has called us to, to live out the good news that he has put in our hearts and our souls. In our time away, I, we took some vacation, spent time with family, and the kids would come over and hang out and eat all the food out of the refrigerator, and it was great. We had a good time, but I also had an opportunity to take some time for study leave, and I do that every year, and, and uh, reflect on the ministry year and what God is doing, where God is leading us, and the good kingdom work that God has called us to, and it gives me an opportunity to pray for you, and pray for your families, and pray for the ways that God is going to be working in and through our ministry life together. And one of the things that struck me as I was planning for the ministry year and, and the series of messages and, and where we'll allow God's word to impact our life and our life together, I was struck with the, the desire and, the, and I believe the need that we have um, as a praying congregation to focus on prayer as we come into the fall and focus on how, specifically how Jesus prayed. He taught his disciples to pray. We, we prayed that earlier. But he also, and recorded in the Gospels, there are 17 specific times that Jesus pulls away from ministry, pulls away from the disciples. He sends the disciples, get in the boat and go across the, the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to go up that mountain and I'm going to pray. 17 different times, occasions, that Jesus specifically took time to pray. And he also taught about prayer, parables about prayer, saying what, how to pray and not, what not to pray and how to pray to our Heavenly Father. And so we're going to explore that together. We're going to explore prayer together in our life groups, in our sermon series, and as we grow as a praying congregation. We are already a praying congregation, but I believe studying God's Word and how Jesus prayed and how He taught His disciples to pray will encourage us and help us develop a life of prayer that will allow us to meet the challenges that we face, allow us to meet the challenges God has before us and His good kingdom work. So I'm really excited about this and the direction God is leading us. More on that as we come uh, to the fall. This morning we're beginning a new series uh, of messages out of the letter that was written uh, by one of Jesus' brothers. Not often do we think about Jesus as having siblings, is it? But in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is back in his hometown. And you may remember this story. And he comes in and, and some of his, the detractors, they, they say, you know, isn't that uh, Joseph's son? Isn't that 
The carpenter's son, that's what they say. Oh, he's the, the son of, of Mary, remember that? Yeah. And then it says, we know his brothers and his sisters. We know he comes from, and he names the brothers, James, Joseph, Simon. Jesus had brothers, and James is one of his brothers. And James wrote a letter to the first century church. You see, when uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples, they're in the upper room, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they follow the instructions of Jesus, you will be my witnesses, and not only in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they all take off. They leave James in Jerusalem. James is there holding down the fort. He becomes a, a leader and a central leader in the Jerusalem church, leading and guiding the church. He is somewhat of a controversial figure as well, though. Some of the statements that he makes in this letter that we're going to unpack together have been controversial in the life of the church, specifically when he says, faith without works is dead. That made the apostle Paul, his stomach churn when he heard that, because what does Paul say? It is by faith that we are saved, by faith that we're justified. It's not by works. So we'll unpack that a little bit more, what James is talking about there. He also was controversial with Paul and Peter. James had a hard time receiving Gentiles into the Jerusalem church. He thought they had to follow a specific set of rules. Do this, do this, do this, and then we'll receive you into the church. So Peter and Paul had to argue with James in the first council of the church in Jerusalem. and James ultimately comes around and In his church, he begins to invite all people to build an active relationship with Jesus Christ. We wondered where we got that, right? He also made some headway in the church and was quite a leader. So this letter that he writes to the first century church focuses on three grand themes. And we're going to unpack those in the next handful of weeks. First theme is the nature of faith, then the nature of God and character of God, and the third theme is how to live out this practically, practical applications of this faith. So we begin with the nature of faith. This past week, I read a short story. In fact, it's only a sentence, and I'm going to read you this short story, and I want you to pay attention. Listen to the story. A week ago, I saw a cat walking towards me on the side of the road. Suddenly, it noticed me and turned towards me. I grabbed a gun and I loaded it quickly because I was far from camp on the lower slopes of the Kilimanjaro. Now, when you first heard the word cat, you might have thought, oh, that's my neighbor's cat, or my cat, or... The cat videos that you were watching while you were waiting in line at the airport this last week. But as the story develops, the image of cat becomes much larger, doesn't it? You may have had an indifferent sense when you first heard the word cat. You see cat every day, but then as the story develops, cat becomes much larger. 
The word faith in our biblical vocabulary acts much like that. It becomes much larger, different shapes and sizes as the story develops, as the story of our faith develops. We know that faith in its simplest form is to trust, to trust. And it's true for those living in the biblical times, and the Hebrew and the Greek, it meant to trust. The full meaning of faith grows much larger, though, as the story develops. Let's hear how James describes faith as he writes this letter to the first century church. The first chapter. Verses 2 through 8. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter being double-minded and unstable in every way must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Hey, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have picked it up. James is writing and he describes trials and peril and he's telling the early church to count it all as joy. That adds to this dynamic of faith, doesn't it? As the story develops. Someone once said that the moment you decide to follow Jesus is the moment trials begin. What does that mean? That's great. Happy summer. What does James mean with all this trial talk? You know, I was thinking about, you know, that statement about, you know, as soon as you say yes to Jesus, it's the trials and, and the tribulations will come. It's interesting, when Jesus was baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and he hears the voice of, of God, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, right? What happens next? He's driven out into the wilderness, and he's tempted. James talks about the joy that comes from trials. This is complicated. This is difficult sometimes to think about. The trials that we have, the things that we go through, the difficulties, there's some measure of joy in them. The word James uses for trial and testing is the same word used for temptation. It's not this testing that you think about like testing the integrity of, of steel before it goes into a skyscraper or testing a, a car. You know, the auto industry, they have all these tests and they, they run their vehicles through tests to make sure that they're going to be safe for, for uh, passengers. Or the, the exams that you might take in college to evaluate how much knowledge you have on a particular discipline. Now, the way James is using this test or trials or temptation is in its darkest meaning 
the evil one against us. How living in a broken and sinful world creates an intense pressure on our faith. They certainly understood trials and temptations in the first century, specifically in Jerusalem and the pressures of the Roman Empire upon them, the persecution that came when they said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, and the persecution that came their way. We face trials and tribulations in our own lives, temptations. There are many in our world that are persecuted for their faith. Fierce and dangerous temptations that strike without warning. Physical ailments, career setbacks, family and relational issues and problems and bereavement when we suffer loss. Just the uncertainties of our lives can put pressure on our faith. These challenges put pressure on us. And for James, faith in God is not something that is fragile or something that's easily destroyed. In fact, he says intense pressures on faith are not destructive as we might imagine. Indeed, he says, James speaks of, from personal experience, that the pressures that he feels in leading the church in Jerusalem under the pressures of the Roman Empire, and as the church spreads throughout the world, he says faith is proven and strengthened through testing. He talks about how trials produce endurance. An enduring faith. Now allowing endurance to have its full effect in our lives as we become mature in God. And for James, there's real joy in this. Joyful hope knowing that God is with us. God is faithful. God's victory over temptation, over sin through Jesus Christ is real and it has a real impact in our lives. It transforms us. And so James intends to encourage his readers they may rejoice because the dangers and the assaults that they experience in their lives cannot destroy the faith they have in God. Now, to be clear, James does not tell the readers, his readers, nor the church, that because of peril, to rejoice because of the peril, temptation. We're not thankful for peril. We're not thankful for temptation. We're not thankful for the, the midst of the trials that we're in. Testing forces us, though, to focus on the center where we have placed our faith. James says there's joy because of the endurance that it produces and the endurance that we sense and we feel in the midst of our trials, a durability of faith that we can count on in our lives. And also, James does not believe that God is some cosmic examiner. He's up there going, all right, let's see what kind of tricky situations I can put this person through or what health crisis I can throw out their way, see if they'll crumble. That is not biblical. I don't believe it, and neither does James. When he, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, as we prayed earlier, we often say, lead us not into temptation. better rendering of that would be, save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil, is the prayer. 
Sharon, my wife, teaches at the middle school here in Rancho Santa Margarita. She's a librarian also. She teaches foods. And some of you have kids that were in her class. And now they know how to cook, and you're thankful for that. From the library, sometimes she'll bring home books through the summer or books that the students will be reading. And I'll pick them up. I want to see what the kids are reading these days. And one that I picked up this summer was... um, by Edith Hamilton, who wrote this go-to source for Roman and Greek and Roman mythology. Written in 1942, and it's still in print. And the students get to read this book. In this book, it describes the, the lore behind Greek and Roman mythology. And I was reading about what they believed about Zeus, this unpredictable lightning bolt-throwing deity. If you were suffering, it's probably because of Zeus or some other god who was after you for some other reason. It could have been something you did or something you didn't do, but it also could be just because the gods and the goddesses, humans were sport for them, causing pain. This influence of this Greek and Roman mythology had a real influence in the first century. And I think that's what James is is teaching against or teaching to clarify that our God is not that way. Our God is not like these gods and goddesses of this mythology. Not the, the God of his brother Jesus, the risen Lord. Put their faith, put their faith in a God that could withstand the tribulations, the trials that they face. In fact, James goes out of his way to make sure they understand this. And later in this chapter, verse 13, he says this, No one when tempted or undergoing a trial should say, God is tempting me. Why not, James says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt. Does he test anyone? James says this, God is the giver of good. And if you need something, you ask. You ask, you pray. He says, anyone who lacks wisdom, you need to ask God for for wisdom. Don't hesitate. And God gives ungrudgingly. He uses that word, ungrudgingly. Do you know anybody who's a grudge? I can be a grudge sometimes. I can look upon things and hold back grudgingly and say, ah, you know, do they deserve that? Should I? Should I be that compassionate? Should I be that forgiving? Sometimes we allow that to color our idea of who God is. And James is delivering this sense that God is the, delivers good, ungrudging. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back on when we ask. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. We're to pray. James learned from his brother about the generosity of God. Parables and the stories of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says this, who among you? If your child asks for a fish, you're going to give it a scorpion. No, absolutely not. 
God is the giver of good, not evil. Ask God. He does not hold back from bestowing goodness upon his people. So here's the deal. Here's the good news. When we go through trials and tribulations and we're suffering, and we all do, we all have our stuff, we're to look to God and we're to pray and we're to ask God, give us wisdom, God, in the midst of this trial that I'm going through. God, give me compassion in the midst of understanding this difficulty and the one whom I love but I'm having a difficult time with. God, help me with forgiveness. God, help me with my faith. As in the gospel according to Mark, that one man who comes up to Jesus says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. He's praying to Jesus right then and there, give me strength. Give me strength. That's the good news James wants to remind the first century church. Ask. Ask for wisdom. Pray for strength. And make your case before God. There's so often in my day, in my week, I'll be struggling. Like, oh, I've got to figure this thing out. I've got to figure this thing out. And I'm, oh, that's going oh, to fall apart. Oh, this is gonna... And I'll start just want, going through that treadmill. I don't know. Am I the only one? And I have to go, okay, wait a minute. God, do you hear me? Do you understand the difficulty that I'm going through? The trial? I need your wisdom. I need your strength. I need your patience. I need your forbearance and steadfastness. And the generosity, James says it over and over, the generosity of God, he doesn't hold back and he will give it to you. He will deliver it to you. That is the good news, dear friends. This is what encourages us in our faith. That's the, the living word to us today as we go out into this world. As we go out in this world to, to do God's kingdom work, as we reflect what God has given us in our congregation, in our life together. Did you know that years ago, our presbytery planted this church among five other churches in our presbytery? Some of you know this. And it was in a program called, they called it Mood. I'm like, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, wow, that's really creative. Um, but it's Mission on our doorstep. Mission on our doorstep. And there's five churches in our presbytery, and we're one of them. We're one of the mission on our doorstep churches. It was planted probably over 30 years ago. I was thinking about that this week. What is the mission on our doorstep? And I was thinking about how it works with James and his sharing with the first century church talking about trials and, and tribulations and, and peril, and then what they're to do and the, and the endurance that comes through their life together. And the demands that he's saying, listen, you've got to ask God. If we want to be a mission on God's on the doorstep, the, the mission that God has called us to, the kingdom work that God is calling us into, we've got to do what James says. In the midst of the trials and uncertainties, the difficulties that we face, and those that the, the ones we love are facing, we've got to ask God for wisdom, for strength, for hope, for faith, and for love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together his disciples and they in the upper room and it was time for them to have a meal together. He set the table, he washed their feet 
And in the midst of the, the meal, he said to them, He said, <laughs> He took the bread. And I love this part. After giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body that has been broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, remember me. And in the same way, at the end of the meal, he took the cup. He says, This cup is a new covenant. In my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. Now, dear friends, if you're here in person or if you're online, if you're joining us online, hopefully you have your elements ready and prepared. But what we're going to do here is we're going to have three stations. There'll be one right here and one in the middle and then one on the side. If you're coming down, to, if you're in this section, come down this side, the center aisle. If you're in this section, come down this way and over here, come on here. We might bump into each other, it's all right. But receive the blessing and the elements that God has prepared for us to nourish us in our faith in the midst of our trials and tribulations and the perils that we face. That we can be strength, strengthened and nourished. And you may receive the bread and the cup, and you get to decide if you want to receive it right then and there, or if you want to take it back to your seat and receive as you meditate and listen to the music. God is present here by the power of His Holy Spirit, and it's falling upon us right now, dear friends. Gracious God, we thank you for this meal that you have prepared for us, and we pray that as we are nourished by these elements, the bread and the cup, that we may be strengthened in our life and our life together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.